Chapter Three of the Alaskan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Roger Moline. The Alaskan by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Three. Alan Holt was a man whom other men looked at twice. With women, it was different. He was, in no solitary sense of the word, a woman's man. He admired them in an abstract way, and he was ready to fight for them, or die for them, at any time such a course became necessary. But his sentiment was entirely a matter of common sense. His chivalry was born and bred of the mountains and the open, and had nothing in common with the insincere brand which develops in the softer and more luxurious lapse of civilization. Years of aloneness had put their mark upon him. Men of the North, reading the lines, understood what they meant. But only now and then could a woman possibly understand. Yet if in any given moment a supreme physical crisis had come, women would have turned instinctively in their helplessness to such a man as Alan Holt. He possessed a vein of humor which few had been privileged to discover. The mountains had taught him to laugh in silence. With him, a chuckle meant as much as a riotous outburst of merriment from another, and he could enjoy greatly without any noticeable muscular disturbance of his face. And not always was his smile a reflection of humorous thought. There were times when it betrayed another kind of thought more forcefully than speech. Because he understood fairly well and knew what he was, the present situation amused him. He could not but see what an error in judgment Miss Standish had made in selecting him, when compared with the intoxicating thrill she could easily have aroused by choosing one of the young engineers as a companion in her evening adventure. He chuckled. And Mary Standish, hearing the smothered note of amusement, gave to her head that swift little bird-like tilt which she had observed once before in the presence of Captain Rifle. But she said nothing. As if challenged, she calmly took possession of his arm. Halfway round the deck, Alan began to sense the fact that there was a decidedly pleasant flavor to the whole thing. The girl's hand did not merely touch his arm. It was snuggled there confidently, and she was necessarily so close to him that when he looked down, the glossy coils of her hair were within a few inches of his face. His nearness to her, together with the soft pressure of her hand on his arm, was a jolt to his stoicism. "'It's not half bad,' he expressed himself frankly. "'I really believe I am going to enjoy answering your questions, Miss Standish.' "'Oh!' he felt the slim little finger stiffen for an instant. "'You thought, possibly, I might be dangerous?' "'A little. I don't understand women.' Collectively, I think they are God's most wonderful handiwork. Individually, I don't care much about them. But you, she nodded approvingly, that is very nice of you. But you needn't say I am different from the others. I am not. All women are alike. Possibly, except in the way they dress their hair. You like mine? Very much. He was amazed at the admission so much so that he puffed out a huge cloud of smoke from his cigar in mental protest. They had come to the smoking room again. This was an innovation aboard the Gnome. 
There was no other like it in the Alaskan service, with its luxurious space, its comfortable hospitality, and the observation parlor built at one end for those ladies who cared to sit with their husbands while they smoked their after-dinner cigars. "'If you want to hear about Alaska and see some of its human makeup, let's go in,' he suggested. "'I know of no better place. Are you afraid of smoke?' "'No. If I were a man, I would smoke.' "'Perhaps you do?' "'I do not.' When I begin that, if you please, I shall bob my hair. Which would be a crime, he replied so earnestly that again he was surprised at himself. Two or three ladies, with their escorts, were in the parlor when they entered. The huge main room, covering a third of the aft deck, was blue with smoke. A score of men were playing cards at round tables. Twice as many were gathered in groups, talking, while others walked aimlessly up and down the carpeted floor. Here and there were men who sat alone. A few were asleep, which made Alan look at his watch. Then he observed Mary Standish studying the innumerable bundles of neatly rolled blankets that lay about. One of them was at her feet. She touched it with her toe. "'What do they mean?' she asked. "'We are overloaded,' he explained. Alaskan steamships have no steerage passengers as we generally know them. It isn't poverty that rides steerage when you go north. You can always find a millionaire or two on the lower deck. When they get sleepy, most of the men you see in there will unroll blankets and sleep on the floor. Did you ever see an earl? He felt it his duty to make explanations now that he had brought her in, and directed her attention to the third table on their left. Three men were seated at this table. The man facing us, the one with a flabby face and pale mustache, is an earl. I forget his name, he said. He doesn't look it, but he is a real sport. He is going up to shoot Kadiak bears and sleeps on the floor. The group beyond them, at the fifth table, are Treadwell mining men, and that fellow you see slouched against the wall, half asleep, with whiskers nearly to his waist, is Stampede Smith, an old-time partner of George Carmack, who discovered gold on Bonanza Creek in 96. The thud of Carmack's spade, as it hit first pay, was the sound heard round the world, Miss Standish, and the gentleman with crumpled whiskers was the second-best man at Bonanza, excepting Skookum Jim and Taglish Charlie, two Siwa Indians who were with Carmack when the strike was made. Also, if you care for the romantic, he was in love with Belinda Mulrooney, the most courageous woman who ever came into the North. Why was she courageous? Because she came alone into a man's land, without a soul to fight for her, determined to make a fortune along with the others. And she did. As long as there is a Dawson sourdough alive, he will remember Belinda Mulrooney. She proved what a woman could do, Mr. Holt? Yes, and a little later she proved how foolish a woman can be, Miss Standish. She became the richest woman in Dawson. Then came a man who posed as a count. Belinda married him, and they went to Paris. Finney, I think. Now, if she had married Stampede Smith over there with his big whiskers, he did not finish. Half a dozen paces from them a man had risen from a table and was facing them. 
There was nothing unusual about him except his boldness as he looked at Mary Standish. It was as if he knew her and was deliberately insulting her in a stare that was more than impudent in its directness. Then a sudden twist came to his lips. He shrugged his shoulders slightly and turned away. Alan glanced swiftly at his companion. Her lips were compressed, and her cheeks were flaming hotly. Even then, as his own blood boiled, he could not but observe how beautiful anger made her. "'If you'll pardon me a moment,' he said quietly, "'I shall demand an explanation.' Her hand linked itself quickly through his arm. "'Please don't,' she entreated. "'It is kind of you, and you are just the sort of man I should expect to resent a thing like that. But it would be absurd to notice it. Don't you think so?' In spite of her effort to speak calmly, there was a tremble in her voice, and Alan was puzzled at the quickness with which the color went from her face, leaving it strangely white. "'I am at your service,' he replied with a rather cold inclination of his head. "'But if you were my sister, Miss Standish, I would not allow anything like that to go unchallenged.' He watched the stranger until he disappeared through a door out upon the deck. "'One of John Graham's men,' he said. "'A fellow named Rosland.' going up to get a final grip on the salmon fishing, I understand. They'll choke the life out of it in another two years. Funny what this filthy stuff we call money can do, isn't it? Two winters ago I saw whole Indian villages starving, and women and little children dying by the score because of this John Graham's money. Overfishing did it, you understand. If you could have seen some of those poor little devils, just skin and bones, crying for a rag to eat, her hand clutched at his arm. How could John Graham do that? she whispered. He laughed unpleasantly. When you have been a year in Alaska, you won't ask that question, Miss Standish. How? Why, simply by glutting his canneries and taking from the streams the food supply which the natives have depended upon for generations. In other words, the money he handles represents the fish trust and many other things. Please don't misunderstand me. Alaska needs capital for its development. Without it, we will not only cease to progress, we will die. No territory in the face of the earth offers greater opportunities for capital than Alaska does today. Ten thousand fortunes are waiting to be made here by men who have money to invest. But John Graham does not represent the type we want. He is a despoiler, one of those whose only desire is to turn original resource into dollars as fast as he can, even though those operations make both land and water barren. You must remember, until recently, the government of Alaska, as manipulated by Washington politicians, was little better than that against which the American colonies rebelled in 1776. A hard thing for one to say about the country he loves, isn't it? And John Graham stands for the worst, he and the money which guarantees his power. As a matter of fact, big and legitimate capital is fighting shy of Alaska. Conditions are such, thanks to red tapism and bad politics, that capital, big and little, looks askance at Alaska and cannot be interested. Think of it, Miss Standish. 
There are 38 separate bureaus at Washington operating on Alaska, 5,000 miles away. Is it a wonder the patient is sick? And is it a wonder that a man like John Graham, dishonest and corrupt to the soul, has a fertile field to work in? But we are progressing. We are slowly coming out from under the shadow which has so long clouded Alaska's interests. There is now a growing concentration of authority and responsibility. Both the Department of the Interior and the Department of Agriculture now realize that Alaska is a mighty empire in itself, and with their help we are bound to go ahead in spite of all our handicaps. It is men like John Graham, I fear. Some day... Suddenly he caught himself. There, I'm talking politics, and I should entertain you with pleasanter and more interesting things, he apologized. Shall we go to the lower decks? Or the open air, she suggested. I am afraid this smoke is upsetting me. He could feel the change in her, and did not attribute it entirely to the thickness of the air. Rosalind's inexplicable rudeness had disturbed her more deeply than she had admitted, he believed. There are a number of flinket Indians and a tame bear down in what we should ordinarily call the steerage. Would you like to see them? he asked when they were outside. The flinket girls are the prettiest Indian women in the world, and there are two among those below who are, well, unusually good-looking, the captain says. And he has already made me acquainted with them, she laughed softly. Kolo and Heda are the girls. They are sweet, and I love them. I had breakfast with them this morning long before you were awake. The deuce, you say, and that is why you are not at table? And the morning before... You noticed my absence? she asked demurely. It was difficult for me not to see an empty chair. On second thought, I think the young engineer called my attention to it by wondering if you were ill. Oh! He is very much interested in you, Miss Standish. It amuses me to see him torture the corners of his eyes to look at you. I have thought it would be only charity and goodwill to change seats with him. In which event, of course, your eyes would not suffer. Probably not. Have they ever suffered? I think not. When looking at the Flinket girls, for instance. I haven't seen them. She gave her shoulders a little shrug. Ordinarily, I would think you most uninteresting, Mr. Holt. As it is, I think you unusual, and I rather like you for it. Would you mind taking me to my cabin? It is number 16 on this deck. She walked with her fingers touching his arm again. "'What is your room?' she asked. Twenty-seven, Miss Standish. "'This deck?' "'Yes.' Not until she had said good-night, quietly and without offering him her hand, did the intimacy of her last questions strike him. He grunted and lighted a fresh cigar. A number of things occurred to him all at once as he slowly made a final round or two of the deck. Then he went to his cabin and looked over papers which were going ashore at Juneau. These were memoranda giving an account of his appearance with Carl Lohman before the Ways and Means Committee at Washington. It was nearly midnight when he had finished. He wondered if Mary Standish was asleep. 
he was a little irritated and slightly amused by the recurring insistency with which his mind turned to her. She was a clever girl, he admitted. He had asked her nothing about herself, and she had told him nothing, while he had been quite garrulous. He was a little ashamed when he recalled how he had unburdened his mind to a girl who could not possibly be interested in the political affairs of John Graham and Alaska. Well, it was not entirely his fault. She had fairly catapulted herself upon him, and he had been decent under the circumstances, he thought. He put out his light and stood with his face at the open porthole. Only the soft throbbing of the vessel, as she made her way slowly through the last of the narrows into Frederick Sound, came to his ears. The ship, at last, was asleep. The moon was straight overhead, no longer silhouetting the mountains, and beyond its misty rim of light the world was dark. Out of this darkness, rising like a deeper shadow, Alan could make out faintly the huge mass of Koprinov Island, and he wondered, knowing the perils of the narrows, in places scarcely wider than the length of the ship, why Captain Rifle had chosen this course instead of going around by Cape Decision. He could feel that the land was more distant now, but the gnome was still pushing ahead under slow bell, and he could smell the fresh odor of kelp, and breathe deeply of the scent of forests that came from both east and west. Suddenly his ears became attentive to slowly approaching footsteps. They seemed to hesitate and then advanced. He heard a subdued voice, a man's voice, and in answer to it a woman's. Instinctively he drew a step back and stood unseen in the gloom. There was no longer a sound of voices. In silence they walked past his window, clearly revealed to him in the moonlight. One of the two was Mary Standish. The man was Rosalind, who had stared at her so boldly in the smoking-room. Amazement gripped Alan. He switched on his light and made his final arrangements for bed. He had no inclination to spy upon either Mary Standish or Graham's agent, but he possessed an inborn hatred of fraud and humbug, and what he had seen convinced him that Mary Standish knew more about Rosalind than she had allowed him to believe. She had not lied to him. She had said nothing at all, except to restrain him from demanding an apology. Evidently, she had taken advantage of him, but beyond that fact her affairs had nothing to do with his own business in life. Possibly she and Rosalind had quarreled, and now they were making up. Quite probable, he thought. Silly of him to think over the matter at all. So he put out his light again and went to bed. But he had had no great desire to sleep. It was pleasant to lie there, flat on his back, with the soothing movement of the ship under him, listening to the musical thrum of it. And it was pleasant to think of the fact that he was going home. How infernally long those seven months had been down in the States. And how he had missed everyone he had ever known, even his enemies. He closed his eyes and visualized the home that was still thousands of miles away, the endless tundras, the blue and purple foothills of the Endicott Mountains, and Allen's Range at the beginning of them. Spring was breaking up there, and it was warm on the tundras and the southern slopes, and the pussy-willow buds were popping out of their coats like corn from a hopper. 
He prayed God the months had been kind to his people, the people of the range. It was a long time to be away from them, when one loved them as he did. He was sure that Tatuk and Amuktulik, his two chief herdsmen, would care for things as well as himself. But much could happen in seven months. Nawadluk, the little beauty of his distant kingdom, was not looking well when he left. He was worried about her. The pneumonia of the previous winters had left its mark. And Keok, her rival in prettiness. He smiled in the darkness, wondering how Tatuk's sometimes hopeless love affair had progressed. For Keok was a little heartbreaker and had long reveled in Tatuk's sufferings. An archangel of iniquity, Alan thought as he grinned, but worth any man's risk of life if he had but a drop of brown blood in him. As for his herds, they had undoubtedly fared well. Ten thousand head was something to be proud of. Suddenly he drew in his breath and listened. Someone was at his door and had paused there. Twice he had heard footsteps outside, but each time they had passed. He sat up, and the springs of his berth made a sound under him. He heard movement then, a swift running movement, and he switched on his light. A moment later he opened the door. No one was there. The long corridor was empty. And then, a distance away, he heard the soft opening and closing of another door. It was then that his eyes saw a white, crumpled object on the floor. He picked it up and re-entered his room. It was a woman's handkerchief. And he had seen it before. He had admired the pretty laciness of it that evening in the smoking room. Rather curious, he thought, that he should now find it at his door. End of chapter 3 Recording by Roger Moline